Detroit for the first time in 32 years. Your Lions have won a playoff game. How about it? There it is, baby. Detroit. The Detroit Lions have won a playoff game. Can you believe it? Can anybody believe it? You know what? Yeah, we can believe it. Welcome to We Know Ball, episode 80. 80 episodes. For those of you that have tuned in for one or multiple for all episodes, if this is your first, potentially your last, <laughs> appreciate you guys tuning in. Uh, it's an opportunity for somebody like me to talk a little bit about ball, at least with the limited and uh, self-proclaimed ball knowledge that I walk around touting on a day-in and day-out basis. No matter which way you put it, 80 episodes is a lot of episodes, especially if you're going week by week. We've done some you know, multi-week emergency type episodes, a lot of different factors, a lot of different things. Primarily a football, sort of baseball, basketball's third show. Well, we love talking all ball, and we appreciate anybody and everybody that's tuned in as we dive into episode 80 and an unbelievable slate of wild card weekend action in the NFL spanning across the three days of the holiday weekend, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday being Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Martin, Martin Luther King Jr., goat of goats, don't need to spend a lot of time on that. Not that he doesn't deserve it, but at this point, if you don't know Martin Luther King as the goat of goats, then you don't know ball. So, wild card weekend. Two games Saturday, two games Sunday, two games Monday. It was supposed to be two games on Saturday, as it was. Three games on Sunday, and then one game on Monday night. However, the Bills and the Steelers game was pushed back by a day due to some serious weather circumstances in Buffalo. But that being said, we had some awesome action. And I think it kind of spread it out, spread the wealth pretty well over the course of the three days, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. Browns, Texans to start off the weekend, then Dolphins, Chiefs in a miserable condition caliber of game in Kansas City on Saturday night. Packers, Cowboys on Sunday. <laughs> Rams Lions, as you just heard to start the episode there. Spoiler alert, the Lions won, and we'll get into it. 
And then Monday, Steelers and Bills. And to wrap things up last night, Eagles and Bucks as we record here early, 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 early on the Tuesday of the following week. It's uncharacteristic to be recording on a Tuesday, but it's something that uh, we've had to do over the last couple of weeks because of holidays, because of delay, not delay, but the football games being scheduled on Monday, like big time football games. So we'll get into all of it. We'll go from top to bottom. NFL. It's going to be a primary NFL episode. But before we get into that, believe it or not, we're going to talk a little bit of college ball. Maybe a little bit of baseball. Towards the end, we'll see what happens. But we did want to start off with the probably the biggest news of college football. And the biggest development, I would say. So. Nick Saban retires from Alabama. That's not the most recent or biggest development. It's a huge development. And we talked about it previously on episode 79. You've got Saban retiring from Alabama, Belichick and the New England Patriots mutually parting ways. Pete Carroll retiring, I guess, with the Seahawks. Again, like a mutual parting of ways thing. But I think he's to the point where He's just really old and this coaching lifestyle is not super sustainable. Same can be said for, for Nick Saban. Belichick, however, seems to be extremely interested in continuing to coach. And just to quickly touch on that, he's interviewed apparently with now the Atlanta Falcons there's rumors swirling around about the Dallas Cowboys after their disappointing performance in the wild card round. So Belichick's going to be around. Belichick's going to coach again. Uh, Saban, well, Pete Carroll, not so much, and Saban, definitely not. With Nick Saban and with Alabama, I'm not just covering or talking about this subject specifically because I am an Alabama fan, but I do believe it is a big topic to discuss in the world of college football. There's not really other a ton of other items unfolding in the world of college football. I think the only other thing could potentially be the prospect of uh, Jim Harbaugh leaving Michigan. And you'll have to excuse me, by the way, you'll have to excuse me. uh, If you hear any pauses or, or moments of silence, like you probably just experienced, I have to mute my mic and cough, literally cough, or in some cases sneeze. Cause I am just, uh, I'm battling, I'm battling through. I don't know what you would call it. I don't want to say it's a cold. I don't want to say it's the flu. It's just a virus. It's a bug. It sucks. It affects my voice. Um, but we're here. We're battling. It's not something that's going to come close to taking me down, especially when we have so much to talk about. So anyways, Michigan. There's a possibility that Jim Harbaugh leaves, and that's a big storyline. But for the most part, that sort of rumor or talking point has just kind of been like floated around. I think from what I've read, Jim Harbaugh is going to interview for some of these jobs, but hasn't actually committed to it yet. So there's a lot to be determined in that situation with Jim Harbaugh, with Michigan, with that program specifically, but Michigan winning the national championship. Head coach desirable, Jim Harbaugh, obviously. 
having spent time in the NFL and having success in the NFL in his last stint as an NFL head coach. The program that Michigan played against in the national championship, Washington Huskies, is getting absolutely just pillaged right now. Like, Washington football is getting gutted by none other than the Alabama Crimson Tide. Kalen DeBoer, head coach of Washington, up and out. Down to Tuscaloosa, and the new head coach, the 28th head coach in the history of the Alabama Crimson Tide football team, Kalen DeBoer. DeBoer... There's a lot that could be said about this hire. I think for sure it's way too early to talk about Kalen DeBoer going to Alabama as a good hire, as a bad hire, right fit, wrong fit. It's way too early. It's going to be too early until about the end of his second season as head coach. Expectations for next year, as disparaging as it may be for Alabama fans, including myself, it's going to be two losses, maybe three losses. Good news, that's not the end of the world because there's a 12-team playoff, so we can eventually find our way into the playoff with two or three losses, considering a lot of different circumstances, the entire spectrum of the world of college football. So, expectations for year one, two losses, maybe three losses. That's okay. That might get you, might be right in the mix for the college football playoff. But by the end of year two, after he's been able to build an entire year, almost two years under his belt in terms of recruiting, in terms of the transfer portal, in terms of junior college guys, bringing in the right coaches, developing relationships, learning the ins and outs of the program and the city and Everything about it is going to take a little bit of time. It's always taken any good head coach a little bit of time. And it's extremely rare for any head coach to come into any program and make an immediate smash mouth impact in their first year. However, if anybody can do it with any program, it's going to be Kalen DeBoer and it's going to be at Alabama. He's got the right makeup. He's got the right mental approach to this entire thing, bringing over a ton of members of his staff that he's had success with in Washington to a program and to a facility and to a culture that's already been built up to such a high level that the floor for Kalen DeBoer by year two at Alabama should be one or Two losses, absolute max, but probably one loss could be a fluke loss. That's the bottom line. That's the floor. That's the basement expectation by year two for Kalen DeBoer based on what I've seen and what I've collected from him in his sound bites, in his, in his interviews, in his press conferences, the way he carries himself, the way he went about making this decision, how he's bringing guys over, the transfer portal. Baseline expectation of year two is one loss or undefeated. Top of the line expectation is Alabama is scoring anywhere from 35 to 45 points a game, undefeated and national champions. 
legitimately, that's the expectation. And that's not like, oh, I'm demanding these things. That's not like coming from a place of, that's the expectation in Alabama. No, no, no. That's what I expect to happen based on what I've seen. That's what I expect to happen. It's going to be impossible to say, oh, this is a good hire. Oh, this is a bad hire. Even after, during or after the first year, there's been so many guys that have already entered the transfer portal for Alabama that are going to come in from the transfer portal at other schools. It's going to be almost an entirely new program next year, minus a handful of pieces. Jalen Milrow, the quarterback, said he's going to stay. That's great. You know, happy about that as an Alabama fan. You know, that's a main piece, a big piece of the team that's, that's going to be the same is, is your quarterback. You know, offensive coordinator, different. Defensive coordinator, different. Head coach, different. Defensive secondary, different. Defensive line, different. You guys going, got guys going to the draft. Wide receiving core is going to be entirely brand new. You've got Jermaine Burton out of eligibility and done and gone and going to the NFL or whatever at wide receiver. Isaiah Bond, the recipient of the fourth down and 31 play from Alabama at Auburn to, you know, catch the touchdown and give Alabama the lead in that Iron Bowl game. Historic, crazy, awesome play. Isaiah Bond transferred. So, Point being, it's going to be a whole new team. And it's going to be, you just, you can't judge the job that Kalen DeBoer is going to do at Alabama after, during or after his first year as the head coach. It's going to be impossible to say, oh, at the end of the year, next season, if they have two losses, maybe they have three losses, maybe they're undefeated. Maybe they're not undefeated. I don't know. But it took Kalen DeBoer a little bit of time and Washington to build it up, and it's going to take him a little bit of time in Alabama to build up the program that he wants it to be. It's going to be impossible to judge the job that he's done after three months going through the transfer portal and then a few games. Because there's an opportunity, there's a chance Alabama, with their schedule, they've got to play Georgia early on. They have a handful of really tough SEC road games that they have to deal with at Tennessee, at LSU. There's a chance they walk out of their schedule with three losses. And everyone's going to say, this is the failed hire. DeBoer's not the right guy. He's an idiot. He has no idea what he's doing. We should have never hired him. No, no. That cannot, should not be the case for a guy like Kalen DeBoer with a proven track record and in a situation where it's his first year. It's his first year as a head coach in the SEC. But it's very newsworthy. Nonetheless, Kalen DeBoer, head coach at Alabama. My expectations for him going forward. Or that he's going to shoot for the stars. He's going to go high in terms of things like recruiting, in terms of things like uh, expectations of offensive production and 
resources that he's going to provide for the players. Um, you've got, you know, he's going to bring in offensive line coaches, defensive line coaches, receiver coaches, offensive coordinators, quarterback coach. Like, he's going to bring in everybody, all the resources that are necessary. So we'll see what happens. I'm excited for it. Certainly, you know, a different personality, I think, is the main thing to recognize in a situation with Kalen DeBoer going to Alabama. It's a different, it's a different personality. From everything I've seen, the way Kalen DeBoer carries and handles himself, it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing at all. It's just different. It's different from the intensity of Nick Saban. It's different from, you know, the fast pace, quick talk, movement, blah, 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 from Kirby Smart. It's different from the Lane Kiffin, let it fly. I don't give a, you know, about anybody or anything. I'm going to let it rip. Who cares what anybody thinks about me? Like, it's just different. It's different from anything that's ever been affiliated with Nick Saban or his coaching tree or anything involved with that. It's a little bit more reserved. It's a little bit quieter. It's a little bit slower paced, not in a bad way, but it's player driven. It's smooth. It's kind of just the difference. And there's different ways to get to the same point. There's different ways for success. The way I see it with Alabama previously, with Nick Saban, with guys like Kirby Smart as the defensive coordinator, with... Lane Kiffin, an offensive coordinator, Steve Sarkeesian office. It's kind of like, boom, smash, like big boy, run it up the middle, let it rip, speed, fast. Like with Kalen DeBoer, the way I kind of, the best way I could describe Kalen DeBoer and his approach and how he's gone about handling his business is slow as smooth, smooth as fast. Where the way he he talks is very deliberate. He puts a lot of thought and effort into all of his actions. He's a little bit more reserved. He's a little bit more soft-spoken. You know, he's not going to scream and yell and get in a guy's face probably anywhere near as much as the previous guys, as the other guys that he's going to be facing off against in the SEC. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. And it's going to be impossible to judge Kalen DeBoer and the job that he's done at Alabama, unless you give him two full years to run the program exactly how he'd like to and have everything under control, bring in the right guys, bring in the right players, recruit the right people. And then we'll see where he's at after the 2025 season. And if there's not back-to-back final four or potentially a national championship mixed into that, in the next two years, I I would be a little bit surprised based on the body of work from Kalen DeBoer. I mean, the guy's done nothing but win everywhere he's gone. Everywhere he's gone. So that's the expectation. That's the hope. And we'll see where it goes. All right, moving on from college football. It's over. It's done, right? There's a couple of other, uh, well, I mean, desirable head coaching jobs. You've got the Washington job now. Kalen DeBoer's gone. Uh, but after that, I mean, you know, you've got the Michigan head coaching job. You've got, you've got A&M, a lot of other schools that have let go of their coaches have already filled them out. 
And then you've got Lanning staying at Oregon, Mike Norvell staying at Florida State, Sarkeesian staying at Texas. So a lot of these coaches stayed and turned the job down. Kalen DeBoer did not. And I think ultimately it's going to be a good career decision for him. That's that's my belief. Transitioning to the NFL. Here we go, baby. Here we go. NFL wildcard weekend. How do we categorize NFL wildcard weekend? How do we do it? There's a lot of different ways you can categorize this first round of the NFL playoffs. The best way I can do it, the best thing that I can think of in talking about all six games, to me, it's pretty obvious. The teams that were built for the regular season are the teams that didn't get through the first round of the playoffs. Now, what does that mean? What What do you mean regular season? What the Eagles were eleven and six, the Cowboys were twelve and five. That's a great record. They played a sixteen games at a high level, seventeen games at a high level. What do you mean built for the regular season? Those were good football teams. Yeah, except they weren't. If you look at the Eagles. From a fundamental standpoint, if you look at the Cowboys, if you look at the Dolphins, and you look at the Steelers and the Cleveland Browns, all of those teams on a consistent and regular basis, all the teams that lost except for the Rams, Browns, Dolphins, Cowboys, Steelers, Eagles, every team that got walked out of the first round of the NFL playoffs was built for the regular season. They were regular season merchants to a degree. A lot of them were stat padding in some areas. Some of them played really good games against really bad teams. And then every time they played a legitimate opponent on one side of the ball, a great defensive team or a great offensive team, they looked horrible. I mean, the Dolphins, every time they play a team above 500, they lose. The Browns, wildly, wildly inconsistent. Big wins against really good teams, and then they can't beat bad teams. The Steelers can't score points, have a horrible offensive scheme, but they play good defense and good enough defense, and all of a sudden, they don't have TJ Watt at their disposal, and they're the Carolina Panthers. The Cowboys, holy cow, regular season merchants, if I've ever heard of one in my life. The Dallas Cowboys. Let's go over some of the teams they beat this season in that amazing 12-5 and NFC East crown that they claimed this season. Their wins include some teams like the Giants, the Jets, the Patriots, the Chargers. The Giants again, the Panthers, the Commanders. 
uh, fake win against the Lions. The Commanders again. And actually, we'll get into that in a second. But. And then you got the Eagles. Also in a historically brutal division. Played against a bunch of really bad opponents. You know, started 10-1. and one, But then as things started to unfold and their schedule got tough, guess what? They became the worst team in the NFL. In almost every single metric. Defensive tackling, defensive efficiency, third down efficiency on offense. Rushing attack. They became abysmal when they started to play against good teams. If you didn't see the Eagles, the Cowboys, the Browns, and the Steelers losing, oh, let me even go one step further. If you didn't see the Eagles, Cowboys, Dolphins, Steelers, and Browns losing, if you didn't see those teams losing, then you don't know anything about football because those four or five teams were some of the most fraudulent regular season merchant type teams I've ever seen. The Dolphins couldn't beat anybody above 500. The Browns would beat a good team one week and then lose to a horrendous football team the next week. Wildly inconsistent. Banking on a 38-year-old Joe Flacco, their fourth starting quarterback this year, to lead them to the promised land. After he carved up who? Oh, the Jets? Yeah, there's nothing there. The Cowboys playing some of the worst teams I've ever seen on any NFL schedule, finishing the year 12-5, and five, and then losing every time they played against a good team. The Steelers unable to move the ball offensively at any point, cycling through three different quarterbacks to get into the postseason because they played good defense, honestly because they had T.J. Watt. And then the Eagles, starting off 10-1, oh, they're a really good team. And then, oh, their schedule got a little bit tough, and they folded in half. Became one of the worst football teams from a metric standpoint in the last five or six weeks of a season in the history of the NFL. If anybody didn't see any of these teams losing, didn't see it coming, you don't know anything. For the Steelers, honestly, it's not the end of the world. It's okay. In fact, I feel like they're playing with a little bit of house money, right? 10 and 7 for the Steelers, having Kenny Pickett, Mitch Trubisky, and Mason Rudolph at each point in the season starting games for them. How and why would they be anywhere near 10 and 7? So for them, it's like they go into Buffalo, play against a good Buffalo Bills team on the road. It's negative a million degrees. Well, it warmed up a little bit, but you get my point. Stay there an extra day. It's a blizzard. It's all this and that. I get it. You know, I get it. That's a, that's a loss that was obvious. I mean, the Bills are favored by 10 points going into that game is what it is. But you got the Eagles favored by four and a half, just getting rolled by the Bucks. I mean, rolled. The Cowboys, favored by seven, rolled by the, the Green Bay Packers. Dolphins, second highest scoring offense in the NFL this year, rolled by the Chiefs, can't move the ball. And then the Browns, 
again, losing to the Texans, looking like a JV football team. So we'll go through each game here. We're not going to spend a, a crazy amount of time, but there's a few things I wanted to touch on in each game, a few things that I think that are important to point out. So Texans beat the Browns 45 to 14. You've got the fraudulent Browns who uh, <laughs> going through their schedule, right? They beat like, I mean, look at, look at these first, uh, look at these first four weeks. They beat the Bengals, lose to the Steelers, beat the Titans, lose to the Ravens. That tells you everything you need to know. They beat the 49ers. How is that possible? How do you beat the 49ers? How? How'd you do it? Beat the Colts and lose to the Seattle Seahawks. Like they have wins this year against they be, they they went one on one against the Ravens. So they've beat the Ravens and the 49ers. But they've lost to the Broncos, the Seahawks, the Steelers, and the Bengals. Frauds. Anyways. So. You got the Browns beaten. I'm sorry. You got the Browns-Texans game. Texans take down the Browns 45-14. to 14. Takeaway one, obviously, Browns were frauds. But takeaway two. I don't I don't want to put too much weight on this. I don't want to be dramatic here. But CJ Stroud, dude. Is CJ Stroud already one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL? I mean, he's a freak. Statistically speaking, he is one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL in terms of efficiency. Cumulative stats didn't really add up because he missed a bunch of games. How about 16 for 21, 274, three touchdowns, no picks. 157 passer rating against the Browns defense. Oh, um, that's unbelievable. And he's a rookie. What are we talking about here? Watching him play quarterback, watching him stand in the pocket, it like it scratches that itch in your brain. You know that thing you can just tell? You see something from a guy, you watch his arm action, you watch his delivery, you watch his feet in the pocket. He's floating in the pocket. His feet are chopping, but he's under control. He's maintained. He's got a great center of gravity. His delivery is on time and accurate. Deep, short, middle, arced, on a line. He's got that thing, man. He's got it. I don't know what it is, man. He's got it. I mean, we're looking at CJ Stroud. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that guy walks out of his NFL career with three-plus MVPs. Guy is a monster. He's a freak, dude. He's tall. He's athletic. He has a rocket for an arm. He's super accurate. Always makes the right decisions extending plays, delivering balls on time and accurately in the pocket, outside the pocket. 
Guy's going to make mistakes. He's not going to be perfect for the rest of his career. Totally understandable, man. He just gets a little bit more protection, a little bit more, and the Texans can play a little bit better and more consistently on the defensive side of the ball. I mean, CJ Stroud, dude. Whoa, he is so good. Like, so good. Crazy good. Unbelievable. I can't, I can believe it, but I also can't. And I think an important thing to point out is there is a reason why he went second overall. And that's not a diss on him. It's more so like Bryce Young went first in the NFL draft above TJ Shroud. As unbelievable as CJ Shroud has been, because he's been unbelievable and how bad Bryce Young was. The disparity between the two first and second picks in their first years in the NFL. It's so obvious to see that play calling, offensive weapons, and protection for a quarterback can make or break a guy's almost entire career. Almost his entire career. Because CJ Stroud, circumstantially, Set up for success from day one in Houston. Brand new, motivated, really intelligent head coach coming in in D'Amico Ryan's offensive line was at, at least competent enough to run the offensive scheme that they wanted to do, which was kind of a run and gun, air the ball out a little bit in Houston. Really solid offensive weapons for him at his disposal. You draft a couple of receivers. You've got Collins, John Mechie, uh, Noah Brown, Dalton Schultz coming over at tight end. Boom, set up for success. And then you flash down to Carolina, and you've got a little bit smaller, probably more of an accurate but capable quarterback in Bryce Young getting sacked more than any other quarterback in the NFL. That's not going to lead to success. A carousel of running backs that... None of them are dependable. He's got a back end of his career, Adam Thielen. Back end of his career, uh, uh, who's the tight end? Um, Hayden Hurst, right? Yeah, Hayden Hurst. He's got old Thielen. Old Hayden Hurst. DJ Chark. Like, I not set up for success an old previously disposed of head coach and frank reich and then they can him halfway through the year okay well bryce Hill, your year's over it's week 10 your rookie year's done and not that they didn't want you because they clearly did but the panthers traded away their first overall pick for next year to get you so now they don't have any good draft picks coming up so they aren't going to be able to improve like circumstantially and situationally you have to be prepared to take on a top level quarterback and the houston texans did it the perfect and the right way they took the right guy that they wanted 
I have no doubt in my mind that if roles were reversed and CJ Stroud went first overall, the Texans would have taken Bryce Young. I don't know how good Bryce Young would have been. Maybe just as good, maybe not quite as good. Who knows? Nobody's a fortune teller. But I can tell you that one guy was set up for success, one guy wasn't. And that's not dissing on CJ Stroud, and that's not defending Bryce Young. Because you still got to go out there and you still got to go play. But no matter the circumstance, CJ Stroud has been a monster. A monster. And he is going to be a force to be reckoned with in the National Football League for the next 15 years. Whoa. Whoa. I mean, what a dog. Dog, dog, dog. He's a freak. Good for him. Texans win. Texans got to go to Baltimore this weekend. Going to be a good game. Going to be a tough game. Uh, Good luck, guys. You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying it's not doable. It's just, uh, it's kind of tough, kind of tough. We'll see what happens. Up next, Dolphins Chiefs. Chiefs blow out the Dolphins. Yeah, it was only 26 to seven. That's a blowout. Not going to spend a whole lot of time on this game because this was the most obvious outcome in the history of the NFL playoffs. The Dolphins, historically, built for warm weather, built for fast tracks, built for speed, built for uh, outrunning the other team, built for agility, play calling, play design. Everything about it is open field, running, guys in motion complex offensive schemes when it gets cold and it gets windy like it was in Kansas city, throw it all out the window. Who can handle the elements better dolphins or chiefs Uh, chiefs Uh, chiefs by a million. And that's exactly what happened. The dolphins also from a defensive standpoint were, were, you know, kind of, they lost a few guys. They were falling apart a little bit. Nobody was entirely maybe fully healthy, but the Chiefs ultimately kind of mahomed the Dolphins. Patrick throws for 262, and it's like super windy and cold and whatever. It's like he's still just slinging the rock accurately. The Dolphins, when it comes time for the postseason, I'll say it this way. When it comes time for the NFL playoffs, as you get deeper and deeper into the season and then you get into the postseason, the regular season success that was built off of whatever platform that teams choose to go with potentially use that as a building block going into the playoffs. But ultimately, it starts to become pretty evident that the team that's more physical, better at the line of scrimmage, gets after the quarterback a little bit better, makes tackles, and limits the damage on the defensive side of the ball, those are the teams that end up moving on. The Dolphins were playing two-hand touch. 
the Eagles refused, refused to tackle anybody. They refused. Cowboys couldn't get to Jordan Love. And he let them pay for it really quickly. It became pretty evident. And with this Dolphins-Chiefs game, they couldn't get to Mahomes. They didn't make any tackles. Their little speed option, you know, quick out, motion, offensive scheme, not as effective when it's negative 15 degrees. So Chiefs-Dolphins, Chiefs beat the Dolphins 26-7. to And now the Chiefs have to go play in Buffalo, which we'll get to here in a second. Sunday, first game of the day, Packers and Cowboys. Before we even really blinked, it was 21 to nothing. Twenty-one to nothing. The Packers just showed up ready to go. I think there's a couple of factors that went into this outcome. A couple of reasons why the Packers went into Jerry's world and just blew the doors off the Cowboys. Number one, if you don't realize before that game, you probably realized it by now, the Cowboys were regular season merchants. Dak Prescott was padding some stats late in the third and fourth quarter against some pretty bad teams. They came into the game as the number one offense in the NFL. That's inflated. Look at who they played against. Look at who they scored a bunch of points against. Come back and tell me that they are truly the number one offense in the NFL because they're not. From a numbers point, I suppose that's the truth. But from an eye test standpoint, there's absolutely no way. There's no way. Number two, Packers came into this game playing some excellent football. Jordan Love every single week seems to get better and better and better. Combine that with the fact that the Packers had nothing to lose. Absolutely nothing to lose. Getting into the playoffs for the Packers this year was a win. Drafting another really good quarterback appears to be a win for the Green Bay Packers. So going into Jerry's world, controlled environment, dome, like it's not some cold weather, hostile environment. It's like it's Cowboy Stadium. They win the coin toss. They elect to receive go down and score immediately. And it just was never a game after that. It was never a game. And the Packers had nothing to lose. They played loose. They played free. Jordan Love slinging the rock around, protecting guys. Everyone's making plays, maybe at a a little bit of a higher level than normal because they're playing loose and free. They got nothing to play for. And you could take that coin, flip it to the other side, and the Dallas Cowboys... Every single person in that organization, in that building, affiliated with the Dallas Cowboys, going into that game and going into this postseason. In the back of their head, they would be lying to you if they didn't say they had that little guy sitting in the back of their head. Jerry Jones, we haven't won a playoff or we haven't done anything in the playoffs, haven't got to an NFC championship. 
since the 90s. We got this brand new stadium. We got the top offense. We got Dak. We got CD. We got a new coach. We bet I, I, every single person affiliated with the Cowboys going into that game had that thought in the back of their head. Little, just, just a little tight. They're just playing a little tight. Oh, we better win. Oh, seven point favorites. I mean, we're at home. Uh, or the two seed, you know, I mean, we better, I, I, uh, we better win. I mean, I, I don't know. We just can't turn the ball over. And then Packers go up seven. Packers go up 14. Now they start pressing a little bit, even more press, press, press and interception. Another touchdown 21. Oh, game over, game over. That's it. Game's over. It's over. Like, that's how quickly these things can happen. One team showed up loose, free, and ready to go. One team showed up tight as hell, worried about the prospect of potentially losing again at home in the playoffs in the first round to the Green Bay Packers. It's exactly all you have to talk about in that game. Doesn't mean Dak Prescott's not a good quarterback. Doesn't mean Mike McCarthy's not a good head coach. Cowboys have a ton of good players. Cowboys probably, on paper, a better team irrelevant in the postseason you don't show up loose free and relaxed ready to execute a game plan or ready to bounce back or ready to manage a game a little bit at the quarterback position you're not gonna win anything you're not Can't expect to win like that. Yeah, it, 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 I feel bad for the Cowboys fans. I do because they expected something different and they didn't get it. I know we've heard, uh, you know, we've heard Cam Newton talking about these different quarterbacks, labeling them as game managers, as if it's got a negative connotation to it. Well, I've got a newsflash for everybody. If Dak Prescott was a true game manager, the Cowboys had a chance to climb their way back into the game in the postseason against the Green Bay Packers. Because a true game manager is some of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. They manage the football game. They control the flow. They control the pace. They take safe, smart throws. They check into run plays when and if they need to. They throw the ball away when they need to. But when the Cowboys go down 14-0, you need Dak Prescott to manage the game, lead the team down the field, execute a well-thought-out, well methodical drive, and get the ball into the end zone. Slow down the pace of the game. Change the momentum. Show everybody involved. We can score. We can stay in this game. Everybody take a deep breath. Give our defense a little bit of time on the sideline to catch their breath. Manage the game. Take the ball down the field. Cut the lead in half. Instead, what does he do? He does the opposite of that. 
pick. Not just a pick, a bad pick in their own territory gives the Packers 25 yards to score another touchdown, and they do. Goes from, could have been 14-7, to manageable, controlled environment, slowed the pace of the game down a little bit. Circumstances may be what they are at that point. Instead, 21-0. Game over. Game over. So I think there's good and bad things about being potentially labeled as a game manager. I'll tell you what, the Cowboys would have preferred game manager Dak Prescott over horrendously timed turnover Dak Prescott. You manage the game, a lot of times you can win the game. But the negative part about the game manager thing usually comes into effect when people are doing things like MVP conversations, talking about, oh, who's better, who's this, who's that. You know, it's like Mahomes is, is both. Patrick Mahomes could be a game manager and he could be the most dynamic offensive weapon in the NFL, which then puts you in the category of MVP. And then there's some guys who will never, you know, get to a point where they're extremely dynamic or in MVP consideration, but they can still be game managers. So that's why there's kind of a negative connotation on it, right? When you go through the rest of these games, Baker Mayfield, game manager, not an MVP caliber player, but a game manager. And that means it's negative, but in my eyes, that's also a positive because he managed the game, went ahead and won the game. Speaking of game managers, I mean, you got, you know, Lions and Rams on Sunday night. Lions beat the Rams 24-23. Lions win their first playoff game in, I mean, I don't know how long, but good win at home now, by the way, they get to host the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And I think that'll be a really fun game. Going to be pulling for the Lions, pulling for the city of Detroit. I think it's a fan base that's deserved and earned the opportunity to host another playoff game. They won their first playoff game. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about this, but ultimately this game was going to come down to kind of, you know, who had the ball last, um, who made the fewer mistakes. Um, and there really weren't a ton of mistakes. So really, I don't think there was a single turnover in this game. Actually, let me make sure that's correct before I just start throwing these insane claims around. Let me check. Team stats in this game. Zero turnovers. Time of possession. There was a difference of 10 seconds of time of possession. The Rams had the ball for 30 minutes and 5 seconds. The Lions had the ball for 29 minutes and 55 seconds. Both teams had zero turnovers. The Rams actually had 425 total yards of offense. The Lions had 334 yards of total offense. Lions 24, Rams 23. How about the Lions had 23 first downs. The Rams had 22 first downs. I mean, evenly matched. Evenly matched. Kind of a coin flip game. And for the Lions to come out on top, I think that's big for that team, big for the organization. And uh, ultimately, they deserved it and they earned it. Congrats to the Rams on a pretty good year. Uh, but Lions came out on top. It was a good game. Moving on to Monday. 
Uh, Bills and Steelers. Bills take down the Steelers 31-17. The Bills now get to host Patrick Mahomes for what seems to be like the 372nd matchup between Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen, the Bills and the Chiefs. Every year they're matched up in the playoffs. Every year. Every year they play each other. And every year it's an awesome game. Every year everything rides on that game. But every time they've played each other, it's been in Kansas City. Patrick Mahomes' first road playoff game in his career. And I feel pretty confident in saying this. Nah, I'm not going to say that. I was about to say the winner of that game is going to the Super Bowl, but the Ravens exist, and that's, yeah. I think there's a chance with Kansas City coming to Buffalo that the Bills could blow out the Chiefs. Like, there's a chance, based on what we've seen from Kansas City this year, the fact that they have to go on the road to Buffalo, there's a chance the Bills win by two or more touchdowns. That's how motivated they are going to be in this game. And the Bills are playing their best football at the right time. Yes, Kansas City just won against the Dolphins, but they had been limping into the playoffs. And for the most part this year, they've limped their way through the season. Kind of career-low production from Kelsey, from Patrick Mahomes. Their defense is good. But going on the road to Buffalo, it's going to be an awesome game. And I think the only outcomes in this game are it's either tight throughout as it always has been, or it's either, it's either like it literally, it comes down to this, the last possession, like it always has, or the bills blow the doors off Kansas city. I don't think there's any way it could go the other direction. Keep an eye out for the Bills this year, man. I'm not going to say much more. Just keep an eye out for the Bills. Last game to talk about here as we wrap up this episode 80 of the We Know Ball podcast. Buccaneers and Eagles. Bucks beat the Eagles 32-9. to um, I, There's... I don't know if I've ever seen a team literally implode. Implode in front of my eyes harder than I saw the 2023 Eagles just collapse in on themselves like a dying star. 10 and 1. 10 and 1 to losing six of their last seven. And looking like the worst team in football. They couldn't move the ball in offense. They couldn't stop anybody on the defensive side of the ball. They forgot how to tackle. 
They forgot how to protect the quarterback. Couldn't run the football if their lives depended on it. And they had no chance. I mean, they had no chance coming into this game or the postseason in general. They managed to squeak by Tampa Bay somehow. Maybe they get a little bit of momentum, but they're not playing or beating anybody that they play after that. I mean, who do they got to go play at that point? 49ers? Like, they're going to get roasted. They go play the Lions? Smoked. Eagles fans getting a lot of hate because of the way that they handle themselves. The video of the guy throwing popcorn at Sirianni after the game, them booing their team in the back end of the season. I understand. I can see why people don't love that. Maybe situationally one-off, like the guy throwing popcorn, other people being crazy can understand how that wouldn't be acceptable. But overall, the frustration is completely warranted. The Eagles fans watched their team implode in front of their eyes after playing motivated, methodical, well-executed football for the first two-thirds of the season. And then they go through a bye week, and they come up against a tough stretch of games no question about it. And they rolled over. And then as they rolled over and they started to struggle and they started to fall into a rut, they continued to do the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. They continued to tackle poorly. The offensive play calling was suspect in the least. It was suspect in a lot of areas. And the entire, the entire summary of the back end of the Eagles season can be summarized with the Bucks game. Halfway through the first quarter, anybody with the brain and eyes watching the game said, oh, looks like the Bucks are going to be blitzing a lot today. Probably should start running some screens, short, quick throws, get the ball out of Jalen Hurts' hand, quarterback draws, running back draws, start to run the ball a little bit more effectively if possible, and then we can open up the pass game. Eagles offensive play calling goes five-step drop, run up the middle for no game, seven-step drop, incomplete punt. Like, what? What? Yeah, I would boo a lot too. I'm not saying it's a good thing to boo. I'm not saying, of course, to throw popcorn at your coach or do anything like that. I get it. I understand. But for Eagles fans to be frustrated is completely warranted. For them to boo their team, based on the effort that they saw in the back end of the season, I believe that's completely warranted. They have high expectations of these guys. As they should. Because they saw them go 10 and 1. 
after going to the Super Bowl. So for them to just roll over for the last seven games of the regular season and then the postseason, it's pretty lame, if you ask me. The play calling was pretty lame. The preparation and the execution was super lame. And I'd be pissed if I was an Eagles fan. Pissed. I wouldn't throw popcorn at my coach. I wouldn't cuss people out. I wouldn't get into fights. But I'd be really upset, and I'd be demanding for some changes. And that's the expectation. That's where every fan base should be. Do Eagles fans take it a little too far? Sometimes, situationally, one or two different people here and there that get caught on video? Of course. You can say that about a lot of different franchises. The Eagles, just the fans seem to get magnified a little bit more because they are very, very, very passionate. Some of the most passionate fans in the entire country, in the world. There's some good you can take away from Eagles fans, and then there's some bad with those videos of guys throwing popcorn, getting into fights, cursing people out, being obnoxious. But there's no problem with holding your team accountable. There's no problem with booing in certain aspects of a season and there's no problem with having high expectations that's what eagles fans have had they should have and then you get to a point now where the team doesn't do anything they don't change any part of their game for the last three months of the season and they're eliminated in the first round after going to the super bowl last year and starting 10 and 1 this year frustration warranted certainly warranted Maybe there's a couple of ways here and there to polish it up. Let's dial it back with the extravagant responses, the, the big blow-up negative things that we hate to see. Let's dial it in a little bit more, uh, but also have an understanding from the outside and not an Eagles fan that they are frustrated, as they should be. So either way, hopefully you guys enjoyed. That'll wrap it up. Episode 80 of the We Know Ball podcast. Again, my name is Ryan at We Know Ball Sports on Instagram and TikTok at Ryan Knows Ball on Twitter. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, greatly appreciate it. Be sure to check us out on YouTube. We're going to be doing a little bit more baseball YouTube content as the year unfolds. Uh, we've got some cool games that are being provided by Baseball Reference that we're going to be playing on there maybe some trivia, maybe some reaction stuff. We've got all kinds of stuff on YouTube. So go check us out on there. Uh, we got clips from the podcast. We got all kinds of stuff at Ryan knows ball on Twitter. I said that already, but check us out on Twitter. Give out some gambling picks, commentary, reaction stuff. You know, it's all the works. You know how this stuff works. If you're listening and if you're listening to the very end, if you've been listening again, I mentioned this at the beginning, this episode is your first, your second, your 80th of all the 80 episodes. If you listen to 10 minutes of the show or every single second, greatly appreciate any and everybody that tunes into this because it's something that I really enjoy doing and I hope uh, one day can provide on a really regular and consistent basis uh, to provide my touch on the sporting world. So hopefully you guys enjoyed episode 80 of the We Know Ball podcast and we'll talk to you guys after the divisional round.